And so what I want to give you now for the rest of our time together this evening with me and you is I'm going to give you three Ps as I sat and thought about this. What is the job of a parent? I hope you're overwhelmed. I hope you see what's at stake. I hope you realize it's, it's your job to, to really form tomorrow. It's your job to shepherd your child's heart. It's not your job to not just be humiliated by the way your child acts in public. It's not your job to keep the CPS from knowing your name personally. Just like the goal of marriage, gang, is not to stay undivorced. And I know that there's a bunch of folks in this room that are here together that you're more undivorced than you are married. And you're missing the goal of marriage. The goal of marriage is oneness. Not just not filing for divorce. The goal of marriage is intimacy, not just not committing adultery. The goal of parenting is not having CPS take your kids away. The goal of parenting is not uh, not having your kids be a, a terror in reputation in the community. The goal of parenting is to have your child learn the way of righteousness, embrace it themselves, and walk in the fear of the Lord. To shepherd their heart. Now what does a parent do who wants to do everything that he can do toward that end? Well, a parent's job is to protect. Specifically, I'll spell it out for you a few ways. A parent's job is to protect from stupidity. <laughs> That's right. You might want to use the word rebellion. But the word I had down there initially was stupidity. This is the reality. Are you ready? I don't want to blow your image of your sweet little child. But your child's nature is already headed in the wrong direction. It doesn't need you to nurture it. It needs you to divinely interrupt it. Now this is significant. You are not dealing with a blank slate. You are not a blank slate. God didn't need to nurture the rebellion that was born into your heart. God needed to divinely interrupt it as, his, as your Heavenly Father. And that is exactly what God wants you to do in grace. Children are reproduced after their kind. And what is their kind? They are born now into a, a race of sinners, of rebels against God. And that is why. I just have a little list here. Children are selfish. And, and listen, I didn't just do a case study on the Wagner home. But if I did, I, I could have come up with this. Children, all of God's children left alone are selfish. They are not naturally other-centered. They are demanding. When they want something, they pitch whatever fit they have to get it. My sweet little boy, Camp, who's coming up on two years old, I walk in the house yesterday, and it sounds like Alex is just, you know, branding him with a curling iron upstairs. And I, walk, I go, what in the world is going on? And she goes, he's been doing that for 15 minutes. He doesn't like the clothes I put on him. <laughs> and I looked at him, I said, hey, Barbie, you know, you're a guy. You don't care what clothes you wear. <laughs> I didn't say that. But I could have, because he's not two yet. But he did. He just didn't like it. You know what? I don't think it mattered what she put on him. He was just kind of starting to say, all right, I'm going to start to test my ability to control my world. She could have put on him whatever he picked out that day, and I think it was just his day to say, all right, I'm going to see who's king in this house. Is it that woman who can run faster than me, who can lift me up, who can turn me upside down, has to wipe my butt, or is it me? <laughs> now, frankly, if there was somebody every time I crapped in my pants, wiped my rear end, I'd start to think I was king too. Okay? <laughs> but... It, 
We've got to divinely interrupt that. <laughs> Kids are short-sighted, okay? They lack any discipline in the area of delayed gratification. You offer a kid a lollipop or a Lamborghini, where are they headed? Every time, right to the sucker. They are lacking in wisdom. They are both childish and foolish. I'll talk about that in a later session. They are helpless. Those kids can't do anything to change their environment. They are forced to associate with you. And God expects their association with you to be a blessing in their life. And if you cause one of his little ones to be in an environment that is not a blessing, there's somebody worse than Sammy the Bull waiting to chat with you. They are impulsive. They are prone to temper, tantrums, and fits. And some of you kind of are going, what are you talking about children, Wagner? This is me. Exactly. All of God's children are bent this direction. They're easily deceived. Want to help me look for a puppy? Hey, watch this commercial. It'll tell you how to be happy. Just buy this toy. No, buy this toy. No, buy this toy. No, buy them all. That's what you need. Fearless. They won't run from danger. They don't know the difference between a rope and a rattlesnake. Kids don't know the difference between a cliff and a curb. And somebody's got to teach it to them. They consistently make messes they cannot clean up. They're fickle. They're indiscriminate in what they will put in their mouths. All right, if we just want to laugh a little bit, we could just take turns telling stories right here. Suffice it to be said that if our spouses knew what we put in our mouths when we were kids... We wouldn't be kissing very much right now. They'll just shove it in there. All right? They don't care what it smells like. They might care what it tastes like once it's in there, but they'll give it a good run. I've seen it happen. For us to nurture our children contrary to their bent, for us to nurture our children contrary to their bent, our nature needs to be divinely informed. In other words, the problem is that we've got the same corruption in us that they've got in them. And so we've got to find a way to correct our nature if we're going to be a part of God's divine grace in their nature. Here's the good news. God loves it when you are overwhelmed. Because what do kids that are overwhelmed do? They look for their mom and their dad and they walk around the house like this. Don't they? I've got a two-year-old in my house right now, and that is his favorite position when he sees me. He immediately turns like this. You can lift me up where the good pretzels are. You know where the good cookies are. Take me. Take me. I can't reach them. Get me up there. Okay? And so uh, he just walks around like this whenever he sees me. All right? If I kind of have something else going on, he turns like this over to Kirby. Kirby always takes him to the good cookie. She is definitely politicking for mayor if camp's voting. All right? But that's what a kid does. And you know what? It is one of the most um, ingratiating things that any of my kids do. Do you know what I really love when I get home? I love when my 12-year-old sees me and does this. It warms my heart even more than when my 2-year-old does it. Because she's just saying, I just want, you know, I can reach the cookies, but I want you. I want to be in a relationship with you. I've missed you. I'm glad you're home. Hold me. Talk to me. Speak wisdom into my life. Boy, I love that. I love that. And so does your father. Are you overwhelmed? Are you not sure how to divinely interrupt your bent and your nature? Then I'm going to tell you, you need to just walk around like this. Say, oh, Father in heaven, you've got what I need. He loves that. Just write down your notes right there. We won't look at it, but just write down 1 Kings chapter 3, 7-9. through 9. That was a guy who was the king of Israel. 
And when he was given stewardship over a lot of children, what he specifically did is he just said, you know what, Father, I don't have the wisdom to shepherd these folks. And, and if I could have anything, what I'd ask for you is wisdom. Will you give it to me? And God said, in spades, in spades. And you've asked for something that really pleases me, Solomon. And guess what? You have the same opportunity. But you've got to ask yourself this. God's looking at you right now, and he's saying, hey, I'm giving you 24 hours today. What are you going to do? What do you want? How much of your day are you spending like this? And how much of your day saying, I'm going to pursue riches. I'm going to pursue women. I'm going to pursue me. I'm going to pursue fame. I'm going to pursue my agenda. You can tell God you want this, but he's going to watch not how you pray, but how you respond in wisdom to your opportunity. What are you really seeking? I know you know what to say at a parenting conference, but look at your schedule. Look at the way you're living and decide if you're really seeking God's wisdom because he is looking to give it. His word is there. Dig in. His people are right here saying, come into community with us. Let us teach you what we have learned. 1 Samuel 3.13 will tell you, if you don't ask for wisdom and if you're not willing to interject into your child's corrupt nature, if you're not willing to interrupt it, this is what he will say to you. I am about to judge your house forever for the sin that you are aware of and yet you have tolerated. Your sons have brought a curse upon themselves and you did not stop them. You ready for a really, really nasty principle? The Scriptures warn us that one of God's methods of judging rebellion is by allowing us to live with the consequences of our actions. Paul, punch in uh, Proverbs 1, 20 through 33 for me. You guys can write that down in your little book right there. I just want to let you read this. But here's the point. If you don't interrupt your child's rebellion early, God promises that he will interrupt their rebellion later. Proverbs 1, 20-33, watch this. Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. Daddy is home. I'm here. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out, I'm home. Come with your hands up. Run into my lap. I'm not hidden. You can find me. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing and fools hate knowledge. How long will you be that teenager who says, you know what, Dad, yeah, good, I'm glad you're here. If I need something, I'll come to you. If it's a moment of crisis, I'll hit you up for some cash. But frankly, I've got to stay as far away from me as I can because I want to run my own agenda. You know, you think about what happens with people in their teenage years when they start to get a little freedom. Well, what are you doing in your adult years when God's saying, I'm home, I'm here, come to me? He says, turn to my reproof, behold, I'll pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you because I called and you refused. I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. And you neglected all my counsel. You did not want my reproof. I will also, he then says, laugh at your calamity. I will mock, he says, when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity like a whirlwind. Do I need to illustrate what that looks like? You can't escape it sometimes. It comes kicking up in the sea and you can't run far enough fast enough. When distress and anguish come upon you, then you're going to call on me, but I'm not going to answer. Then you're going to seek me diligently, but you won't find me because you hated knowledge. You didn't choose the fear of the Lord. I was right here all along. You could have read my word. You could have fellowship with me. You could have got yourself right on the believers, but no, you ran your own way. So now I'm going to let you go. So they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. Here's an awful reality, is that one of the ways that God will interrupt your rebellion if you don't do it early by running to him 
is by letting you get your fill of what you've sown in your life. Psalm 106 says that God gave them their desires but sent leanness to their souls. How many folks are in a house right now where they go, I never thought I'd live in a house this nice. But there's a leanness in my soul. You know why? Because you haven't interrupted your nature. And you keep telling your dad as a teenager, you're sure what you need and what you want, and you keep running after it. And he's just looking for you to say, hey, man, come here. I'm home. Embrace me. You don't know how to get out of the mess that you've just created, just like kids don't. But I can walk you back through this. But you're going to have to let go of some things that you think you need to be a happy child. A parent's job is not just to protect from stupidity. A parent's job is to protect from dangers. And there's a few of them out there, are there not? Video games, music, movies, peer pressure, TV, addictive vices, internet. If you're a good parent, you will lead your child through this minefield. If all you do is just tell your kids, hey man, it's a nasty world out there, be careful. That's not much of a parent. You know, um, Corey Tin Boom, you guys know, was uh, famous for the way that she... Uh, handled a lot of uh, their being aware of the persecution that was happening to the Jewish people uh, in Holland, where she was uh, raised. When she was a young girl, right around the turn of the century, um, she was at school and she was studying a poem. And she read a poem there that in that poem said, a young man whose face was shadowed by sex sin. That was one of the lines in the poem. And, And Corey did not know what that meant. And so she went home and she asked her mother, And she said, Mother, what is sex sin? I mean, she was a very young little girl. And uh, her mom, you know, turn of the century, and and that word was never even mentioned in the home. Her mom just blushed and and just moved away from what she said. And and Corey didn't know what to do with that. Well, her father was a watchmaker and a clockmaker and a watch and clock repairman. And so often he would have to go to Amsterdam, and he'd ride the train into Amsterdam, and he would take his bag with him and fill it up with different watch parts and clock parts. And he would sometimes take one of the children with him. And one particular trip on the train, he took Corey. And Corey was along with him, and on the way back, she said to her father, after her father had been shopping in Amsterdam and loaded his bag with all those expensive heavy parts, said, Father, what is sex sin? And she said she remembers that her father looked at her and didn't say anything for what she thought like was a very long time. But then the train stopped, and he he looked at her and he said, Corey, I want you to pick up my bag and carry it out the train. And and. Corey looked at her father, and she leaned over as a little girl, and she tried to pick up this heavy bag of mechanical parts. And she goes, Father, it's, it's too heavy. And what he said to her was this. I wrote it down because I thought it was genius. This comes from her book, The Hiding Place. He said, I'd be a pretty poor father to ask my child to carry such a load. Well, Corey, it's the same way with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you are older and stronger, you can bear it. For now, you must trust me to carry that for you. Now, that's a genius answer. We are sometimes so anxious to show how, uh, to share with our kids our load that we'll sit them down and say, watch this movie. This was hilarious. I remember when I watched Animal House. Sit down and watch this movie. I love Top Gun. Sit down and watch this movie. I thought it was great. 13 gone on 30. Sit down and go see this movie about relationships. You put it in there, whatever it is. And we expect our young children to carry a load that a loving parent would not let them carry. Hey, get on that internet that if you just type in one extra L on Google will take you to a bad site. Go in there unsupervised, unfiltered. 
Hey, listen to whatever music you want on your iPod. I'm not going to check what you're downloading. Hey, watch whatever video game you want. Unlock everything you can with your creative playing. Hey, let your friends influence you. How are they going to influence you? It's just part of growing up. Hey, you can watch whatever show you want in our household whenever you want to. Hey, listen to other people as they tell you how to make your way through life. Well, what I want to do right now is I want to give you a little illustration. I've got around me, I could not get bear traps. They don't make bear traps in North America anymore, but they make what's called large game traps. And um, as the guy told me, he said, I just want to tell you, you get these things, you w- it will take your hand off if you put it in there. He said, so I would not jack around with these. What are you going to use it for? He said, you really need to catch game? People don't even like these. They're not very PC. They're not very politically correct. And what I've done is I've set bear traps up here. Uh, not, excuse me, bear traps, large game traps. And they're all around the stage. And they're underneath their video games. Koopy, come here, buddy. And I brought my son with me today. And I'm going to put my son over there on the other side. And Alex, if you just take that deal right there. And we're going to blindfold Cooper. And I'm going to ask him to walk across the stage right past all these different things right here. Now, some of you guys are already getting uncomfortable. And you're going, why would you even let a nine-year-old walk across the stage with these traps up here where he could easily lose a finger, easily lose a foot? If he puts his foot into this thing, it would be gruesome to say the least. Um, but now you're blindfolding the young kid. But I want to show you because I'm telling you, and I, I don't know I was going to do that. But some of you guys are letting your kids walk through some of this stuff, and they're losing something more precious than a finger, more precious than a foot. And their soul is being programmed. Their heart is being filled. And you just kind of go, you know what? I mean, they're going to learn sometime. So, Koopy, you, you know what's up here. I've, I've showed you these things and, and how they're powerful. So I want you to listen to my voice. You can walk if you want to, buddy. But, you know, there's going to be a great consequence to you. But your father who loves you is going to guide you across this stage. All right? So just start walking straight ahead. If you stay straight ahead, you'll be fine. It's all right. You've got about five more steps. You're going to come to two steps. All right, good. You're away from the first trap. Why don't you put your hand down on the step? Good. There's two steps there. I showed you those earlier. Why don't you go ahead and walk up those two steps? That a boy. Okay. Now you can walk straight ahead. It's pretty safe. All right. Good. Keep coming. Another two steps. Good. Stop right there and take two steps to your right. One more big step to your right. Okay, good. Now stay away from some stuff just over your right shoulder. That would really hurt you, Coop. All right. Just over your left side right there, there's some other stuff. If you listen to that or if you go too near, it's going to really devastate you, okay? And we know I want you to be able to talk to those folks and understand what it's going to say. But at the end of the day, I mean, listen to your daddy and just walk straight ahead and you will be fine. Just walk straight ahead. That a boy? Okay, but I want you to stop, okay? Because what you're going to see as you advance in life a little bit is it's not just your friends who are going to tell you stuff. There's going to be other people, teachers, educators, commentators, who are going to tell you certain things about... Uh, about Things that your daddy says he's believed and shown you why he believes them. And I'm going to tell you that that is a trap. And you need to take a step to your left or you're going to really hurt yourself. Okay? Now come straight forward. You're doing great. It's really good, buddy. Stop right there. You're really close to some stuff that's really easy to watch. It is all around you, in fact. And I really mean that. In fact, I want you to take a step to your right. You're too close to it. Thank you. Okay? And, uh, and this is stuff you've got to really be intentional about avoiding. All right? And so um, be careful. Just come forward about three steps. Okay, that's good. Stop right there. Now just come over to where my voice is this way a little bit if you can hear me. Good. There's two steps right here. Come up a little bit. You'll see that. Excellent. Good. Now, just, now there's two steps there. All right. Now watch. 
One more step and you're going to be on pretty solid ground. All right, buddy? But as you get a little bit further up here, all right, there's some things that are going to tell you. This is how you should cope with strategies. Now that you're going to, uh, some pain you're going to have to have in your life. Take two steps to your right. And I'm going to tell you, this stuff, though it's going to look like it's going to offer you some solace, is going to be painful if you mess with it. So now walk you straight over here to me, about five steps, straight forward. All right. a boy. All right. Good job. Good. All right. Now, thank you. All right. You can go upstairs now if you want. All right. And because we've taught, watch yourself, Coop, there's a trap right there. Okay. Easy. Now, I want to tell you, um, these things are, are really, um, they're pretty amazing. If you, if you, oh, I missed it. See there? All right. But it'll cut that little piece of lettuce. Here's a watermelon. For those of you guys who are sitting over here, I'll do a Gallagher for this group right over here. How's this? You guys ready? Look out, Coop. Oh, there. Takes the watermelon off. But these traps right here, like I said, would take his foot off. And it wouldn't be a pleasant thing. Okay? And it's a parent's job to protect their children from danger. It's not an overbearing parent that would do this. It's a loving parent that would make sure that their child doesn't just walk aimlessly through what their friends are saying to them and then just let them watch whatever media they want that's out there. And I'm setting these off on purpose so that we don't forget them that they're set off a little bit later. Or lets them just go and just, you know, nonstop play with video games and things of that sort. It's a parent's job to protect from danger. Sometimes, you know, I just have down there, if you want to look at it, I want to be a kid again. I want to go back to the time when... Things were just a lot more innocent. And one of the things that we're doing is we're pushing our kids into an adult world in a way that's really causing them a lot of pain. You've got to learn to screen what your child's intake and diet is. You do it with food. You've got to do it with the influences of the world. We're going to talk tomorrow about how to pace that. The parent's job is to protect from the world. And what I have there for you in that notes is that little article I read for you a little earlier so you can have that yourself. Okay, a parent's job is to protect, excuse me, is to provide shelter for that child. First Timothy 5.8 is the one that says this, but if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his own household, he is denied the faith, he's worse than an unbeliever. But as we talked as men a couple of Tuesdays ago, here's the reality. Providing for your family includes more than just providing them with funds. You've got to shelter them from a lot of things. I mean, definitely, God wants you to be the, the, the primary means for food, shelter, and clothing to come their way. But I'm going to tell you, I have never, ever, not one time, like I've never had a wife, and I've said this before, come into my office and say, yes, the man loves me, yes, the man cherishes me, yes, the man is intimate with me, yes, the man pursues oneness with me, yes, the man is faithful to me, yes, the man has taken, you know, um, different, made different hard decisions in his career so he could be close to me, but I am leaving him. Because I only live in a 2,200 square foot home and because I drive a Buick. I am out. I've never heard it said. I've never had a kid come into my office. I've never heard a kid in all my years of working with youth who said to me, you know what, my parents suck. Because I can't buy the kind of clothes that I want. Man, oh, my dad loves me. My dad is there for me. My dad reads with me. My dad plays with me. My dad cares for me. My dad is so there for me. But I'm telling you, I am so sick of not being able to get a, a beautiful new car when I'm 16. I've never heard a kid say that. I mean, they, they say to their dad, I'd love a car. But if you're there as a father, you know why kids mostly want cars? Because they don't have anything else. They're looking for that car to give them that meaning. And, you know, to, sometimes they say, okay, dad, if you're going to work to make me happy, then get me the car that will make me happy. 
I asked a group of kids in the area that I worked with one time if they could have from their parents. And this was some hard kids. I said, if you could have anything that you wanted that your parents would give you, or you would know that they would spend time with you in a relationship that you would enjoy with them, which would you choose? And 100% of them, 100% of them, said we'd take the relationship if it could really happen. We just don't believe it could happen. So we'll take the things. And we'll wait for Charlie Manson to come and offer the relationship. You've got to do more than just provide food, shelter, and clothing. It's a parent's job to provide love. You see this model by our Father in Heaven. He knew that. Even when his own son had been serving him, he just said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Dads need to hear, I want to tell you, love, affirmation, and blessing towards the kids. Children, and this is huge, they rarely question their parents' expectations of them. But they will question their personal adequacy. If you are a performance-based individual and your kids are driven to to look a little better, if your kids are are driven to weigh a little less, if your kids are driven to perform a little better, academically outperform others that are around them and that's the way they get love, and if they see them not living up to your expectation on the athletic field, in the classroom, or in the mirror, or whatever it might be, They won't question your opinions as a parent. They will question their adequacy and they will learn to hate themselves. There is no wound as dangerous, and men, I speak to you specifically on this. There is no wound as dangerous for or deep in a man, and I want to say in a man or a woman, and I'm going to show you some stats to back that up, as the wound brought about by an absent or abusive father. Here's some statistics. Children who grow up without a father present, even when adjustments are made for income, are 75% more likely to need professional assistance for emotional problems, twice as likely to repeat a grade at school, and more likely to suffer a wide variety of disorders, including anxiety, peer conflict, and hyperactivity. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 85% of all children that exhibit behavioral disorders come from the fatherless home. 80% of rapists motivated with displaced anger come from fatherless homes. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 70% of juveniles in state-operated institutions come from fatherless homes. 85% of all youth sitting in prison grew up in a fatherless home. That means, Dad, if you are absent or if you're abusive or if you're a driving father... If you're all rules and no relationship, your kid's five times more likely to commit suicide, 32 times more likely to run away, 20 times more likely to have behavioral disorder, 14 times more likely to commit rape, nine times more likely to drop out of school, and on and on it goes. It is nauseating. I want to read this to you. It's one of my favorite things. I read it often myself. I've known of a number of wealthy men who were not successful as fathers. They made money rapidly. Their factories were, marvels of organiz- factories were marvels of organization. Their money investments were sound and made with excellent judgment. And their contributions to public service were useful and willingly made. All this took time and thought. At the finish, there was a fortune on one hand and a worthless and dissolute son on the other. Why? Too much time spent in making money implies too little time spent with a boy. When these children were youngsters romping in the floor, if someone had come into any one of those fathers and offered him a million bucks for his son... He would have spurned the offer and kicked the proposer out of the doors. Had someone offered him $10 million in cash for the privilege of making a drunkard out of his son, the answer would have been the same. Had someone offered to buy him uh, from him a fortune for the privilege of playing with that boy, of going on picnics and fishing trips and outings and being with him a part of every day, he would have refused the proposition without giving it a second thought. Yet that's exactly the bargain those men made. 
and which many men are still making. They're coining their lives into fortunes in automobile factories and great industries, but their boys are growing up as they may. These men probably will succeed in business, but they will be failures as fathers. To me, it seems that a little less industry and a little more camaraderie with the boy is more desirable. Not so much of me in the bank and more of me and my best in the lad. That is what I should like to have to show at the end of my career. Now we get a lot of nods, but there are too many kids that have dads that agree philosophically with Edgar Guest, but practically never experienced the kind of relationship that they long for. My good buddy Dan, that you're going to get to meet this weekend, said one of the wisest things to me the other day when we were talking on the phone. He said, okay, Todd, I got a nugget for you on parent. I heard it the other parenting. I heard it the other day. I said, I'm going to put that in and we're going to use it. He goes, parenting must be present to win. That's right. If you're not there, you can't do what only your being there can do. Don't buy the myth of quantity time over quantity time. You can't create magic moments, folks. You've got to let them happen. And they're often at night when the kids are getting ready to go to bed and laying down. I just put in there for you. I try to give you resources, you know, um, just some stuff I pull from different places, a great little saying about priorities. I want to show you what is consistently true with Sigmund Freud, Friedrich Nietzsche, Madeleine Murray O'Hare, and Voltaire. Guess what it is? Every single one of them in their rant against society, morality, ethics, and God is that daddy wasn't there. It's the job of a parent to provide not just shelter. It's the job of a parent to provide for them not just love. It's the job of a parent to provide for them an example. You see right there in Deuteronomy 6, 3 through 9, just a seminal and key verse for all of parenting. Oh, Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it. Now watch this. God's going to tell them that they should teach it, but look at verse 3. Don't read 4 through 9 without getting verse 3. Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it might be well with you and that you might multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Now he says, now that you have listened and practiced, now you can teach. Now that your bent has been interrupted divinely, now you can teach and interrupt others. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by your way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and you shall be, they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What he's saying there is there is no part of your life that should be secularized, that should be separated from. I'm going to tell you tomorrow about family devotionals. The best family devotionals are impromptu family devotionals. It's not when you sit down and go, hey, come on, let's go. We're having a devotional. Sit down. Would you sit down? Okay? The best family devotionals happen when your child is involved in a conflict. And you, because Scripture is on the front of your head, say, let's work through this the way God would have us work through this. How in this lab of life would God have us apply this opportunity? Some of the most memorable moments I've had with my children is helping them work through some of the mistakes that they've made when they, even if they haven't participated themselves in some deeds of darkness, have stood idly by what others have. Even though they may have thought that they didn't found and initiate the I Hate Ashley fan club, they certainly were willing to be a part of it. 
And at times, I would imagine, participated in some of the group meetings. And so when I find out about it, I don't just say, hey, we can't do that. I go, well, this is what you do. Dad makes mistakes. Lord knows Dad has formed some fan clubs in his life that he shouldn't have, that were painful to other people. And this is what a man does. This is what a godly woman does. And I took my sweet little Allie, and I had her write a letter of apology to every one of those girls that she sat in that playground with and made fun of sweet little Ashley. And uh, we went around and knocked on some doors. And we walked in, and I asked permission for Allie to read the letter of apology to the child in front of the parent and asked their forgiveness when she was done for not being a good friend by not interrupting that momentum and probably for throwing in at different times. And then we went through all that, and then we went over to Ashley's house and sat down with Ashley and her father and did what people do when they make mistakes, which is to say, I have not been a good friend to you. Hurt you by letting others speak poorly of you, by trying to deal with the things that you do that hurt us, by trying to hurt you worse back. And it's been wrong. I need to ask your forgiveness. And you talk about an opportunity to communicate to a father about why you're doing this. And, um, and I just said at the end of it, you know, when, when Allie owned her stuff, I just said, now, Allie, the other thing that's loving to do with Ashley is to explain to her you know, the things that Ashley is doing that's going to make it hard for other folks to be her fans. That doesn't justify anything that you've done. But you've got to love Ashley and ask Ashley if she wants you as a friend to faithfully wound her and not just to give her deceitful kisses. And so she said, Ashley, do you want to know why sometimes some of the girls want to isolate themselves from you? And it's wrong. And I don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to be a part of that. And in my insecurity... You know, I ran there. But here's what it is. And she sat and very lovingly looked her right in the eye, just like she just said, I need to ask your forgiveness. This time she said, I'm going to be your friend, Ashley. These are some things that you're doing that are hurting you with your friendships. See, we went to church that day. Went to church with Cooper when he had a similar circumstance. Had to go over to some friend's house and sit down with them. We go to church at home when uh, somebody doesn't take an opportunity to serve. It's not even a big thing. But we take some of the stuff that Ben and Amy and their creativity are teaching the kids that on your mark and they haven't, they've lost an opportunity to serve somebody else in a way that would just speak of their heart for Christ. The best devotionals are impromptu devotionals. But see, you can't do that if you don't know what God's values are, if you don't know the way God works through conflict. You've got to be an individual that can model that. And if you don't know, the first thing you can do is enroll yourself in a class where you can be reparented by your Heavenly Father. Your junk matters, folks. That's the point. Your inability to um, respond rightly in the messes that you have made will make it impossible for you to interrupt your child's bent towards messes. Your junk matters. Kids may fail to do what you say, but they rarely fail to do what you do. Uh, A parent's job is to provide perspective. You know, kids can't see what you can see, just like we can't see what our father can see. And he keeps reminding us that this world isn't our home. You've got to keep reminding them. You know, one of the wisest things I ever heard uh, someone say was my good friend Wayne Smith, who was in Young Life staff with me at the time. And Wayne, when he was 28 years old, I heard him speak to a bunch of high school kids that we were trying to minister to. And he said, you know, can I tell you something? He goes, I cannot remember the names of more than 10 people that I graduated from. He said, I, I don't know the phone numbers of more than two people that I graduated from high school from. 
And he said, and yet I remember from the time that I was 15 to 18 that I was willing to give my soul away that those people might embrace me and love me and accept me. And he said, I'm just telling you, I wish I would have known that when I was 28, those people wouldn't even know where I lived. They wouldn't even know if I existed. They wouldn't know if I was dead. And I'm willing to do anything for those people to love me at a time. And what he could provide was a little bit of perspective. Ten years further down the road. That's why God tells you, when you come across wiser people, that you should be an individual that listens to them. For they love you. They're going to keep watch over your soul as those who are going to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. It's a parent's job to provide encouragement, folks. We've got to encourage them day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of them will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is a hard, hard world. I uh, love to play games with my kids. We play a lot of games at the Wagner household. And uh, my friends Blaine and Millie are here, and, and they play in a lot of the same sports teams as my kids do. And uh, Millie told me a story about uh, a friend of hers that walked up to Blaine and said, Hey, Blaine, how's soccer going? And uh, he said, oh, it's going good. It's going good. He said, well, who's some of the better players on your team? And she said, Blaney looked right back and said, oh, I am. I am. <laughs> and so a little bit later, this mom bumped into Millie at the, at the grocery store and said, hey, I saw your son. I asked him about the soccer team. Said, oh, good. Well, yeah, he looked me right in the eye when I asked him who one of the better players were. And uh, he said that he might be. And Millie says, well, I'm always telling about the ride home. Blaney, you did great out there. You were, the, you were one of the best players I saw out there today. And she goes, hey. It's the world's job to knock them down. It's my job to build them up, is what she said. All right? Now, as a young man, he'll learn maybe not to respond that way, but how great that that's the mom's perspective. <laughs> how great that that's the mom's perspective. Everybody's going to tell him what he did wrong. I guarantee if he'd ride home with Dad, Dad would have pointed out the fact that even though he scored five goals, if he'd have just gone up on that pass, he'd have gotten six. That's two hat tricks. Come on! You're a Wagner. All right? I, uh, I play the game Loaded Questions with my kids. And, uh, and one of the questions, I, this, was a, this was a while back, one of the questions that was on this particular uh, sheet at the time was, um, how would you describe yourself? And uh, pick two words. And I absolutely cracked up. Uh, Cooper said, handsome and athletic. <laughs> Cade said, nice and gentle. And we went, What? Kirby said, beautiful and a servant. Landry said, sweet and loving. And I just thought to myself, I am so glad that my kids, when they think of themselves, that they, they think of themselves in positive ways, that they don't go, I'm ugly, I'm incompetent. You'd ask me that when I was a kid, you know, I would have said, buck tooth clod. <laughs> that's what I'd have said. And you'd have gone, well, Todd, that's because... You were a bucktooth clod. <laughs> and you had an older brother who faithfully reminded you of that. And, and, uh, and I'm telling you, you know, I mean, I can remember. I, I can remember just stuff. You know, you, one of the things you've got to remember, folks, is that old childhood rhyme, sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but names will never hurt me, is a lie. I have broken numerous bones on my body. I've had hundreds of stitches. And I, I, I have to get to remember. I go in, they say, have you had surgery before? I've got to, I've got to go and take my shirt off and see what side... The shoulder surgery was on. I've got to see what knee was scoped. Okay? And I can't remember where I was hurt. But I'm going to tell you what. There are names that I was called by my dad or by my brother or my friends that to this day take my breath away. And I can remember being in ninth grade. And I can remember being at McDonald's on Lindbergh Road 
and sitting there next to Lar Perry, who I had a crush on since sixth grade. And if you know me, you get up close enough, all right, you can see that probably my most uh, notable feature in my face is my nose, all right, and the fact that it points to about 515, all right. In fact, I was one time at Canacuck, I was disciplining a kid, and I was just helping him understand why the lifestyle he was living, the choice he was making were not appropriate. And this kid's listening to me, and I got done, and, and I look at him, and he goes, is your face crooked? I go, what? I go, no, you idiot, my nose is crooked, my face is straight. Well, did you hear what I just said to you? Because I couldn't, your, your face is crooked. But I can remember. I want to tell you something. This will make you laugh. I can remember. Okay? Laura Perry. Laura Perry turned to me. I was getting ready to order a quarter pound of cheese. And she turned around and she said to me these words. She said, you have a cute nose. And I want to tell you something. I have never not liked my nose since that day. <laughs> and you may think that's silly. But words have incredible power. And that is an incredible blessing that you can give your kids. And we all know that you can hear a hundred good things and one bad thing, and that one bad thing sticks. But you ask your kid, hey, what's daddy passionate about? You ask your kid, give me two words that describe yourself. How you doing? One of the reasons God gave you is to encourage you. Boy, how does the Father look at you? He looks at you as his precious creation that he would love to redeem. I put in there a story for you that's about as touching a story as I could find on the power of words. You read that tonight and get choked up. A parent's job is to prepare for freedom. And I want to just tell you that uh, in this particular thing right here, the uh, Houston Police Department in 1959 uh, put this thing together called How to Raise a Criminal. And they said, here's what you should do. Begin from infancy to give the child everything they want. This way he will grow up to believe that when the world owes him a living. When he picks up bad words, laugh at him. It will encourage him to pick up and cut down phrases that will blow your mind. Never give him any spiritual training. Guiding him towards the right path may cause him to want to live right. Wait till he's 21 and let him decide for himself. This is the Houston Police Department that wrote this. You want to raise a criminal? Here's how you do it. Avoid the use of the word wrong. He might develop a guilt complex after all. This will condition him to believe later when he is arrested for stealing a car that society is against him and he is just being persecuted unjustly. Pick up anything he leaves lying around the house, books, shoes, clothing. Do everything for him so he'll be experienced in throwing his responsibilities onto others. You want to make a criminal? Then let him read any printed matter he can get his hands on. Let him listen to any tape, type of music and watch cartoons and movies that promote violence, negativity, and destruction. Silverware and drinking glasses can be sterilized for cleanliness, but let his mind feed on garbage. 1959. You want to raise a criminal? Quarrel and fight frequently in the presence of this child. Then they won't be too shocked when the home's broken up. This will also teach them that arguing and violence are the way to solve problems. You want to raise a criminal? Give the child all the spending money he wants. Never let him earn his own way. Why should he have things as rough as you had them? He should never have to suffer or learn to appreciate what he's been given. Satisfies every craving for food, drink, and comfort, even if that means allowing him to drink alcohol with you, smoke you, smoke with you, or have sex in your home. See that every desire is gratified. Denial may harm, I may lead to harmful frustration. At least he'll be doing it with the family. Take his side against the neighbors, teachers, and policemen when he is wrong. They're all prejudiced against your child anyway. When he gets into real trouble, apologize for yourself by saying, I never could do anything with him, and prepare for a life of grief and sorrow because you're sure to have it. You know what they did? They just wrote a commentary on the Proverbs that we read earlier. A parent's job is to prepare a child for responsibility. And your child, one day, you are, as I said, teaching your future master. The best way, and everyone talks about they want to be a great grandparent. Who doesn't, Right? But I'm going to tell you, you want to be a great grandparent? You know how to do it? You love that future grandchild's mom or dad right now.
and you model for them what you want to happen in that home. Hey, you can be a great grandparent, but you're going to get a weekend a year, a week a year. You want to be a great grandparent? You give them a great mom or dad. Your child's going to have responsibility one day. The best way to love your grandkid is to love your children. One guy said, I had the meanest mom in the whole world. While other kids ate candy for breakfast, we had to have cereal, eggs, and toast. When others had a Pepsi and a Twinkie for lunch, we had to eat sandwiches. And you can guess our mother fixed us a dinner that was different from what other kids had too. Mother insisted on knowing where we were at all times. You'd think we were convicts in a prison. She had to know who our friends were, what we were doing with them. She insisted that if we said we'd be gone for an hour, that we'd be gone for an hour or less. We were ashamed to admit it, but she had the nerve to break the child labor laws by making us work. We had to wash the dishes, make the beds. We learned to cook, vacuum the floor. We did laundry, all kinds of cruel jobs. I think she would lie awake at night thinking of more things to make us do. She always insisted on telling us the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And by the time we were teenagers, she could read our minds. Then life was really tough. Mother wouldn't let our friends just honk the horn when they drove up. They had to come up to the door so she could meet them. When everyone else could date when they were 12 or 13, we had to wait until we were older. Because our mother, we missed out on a lot of things other kids experienced. None of us have ever been caught shoplifting, vandalizing others' property, even arrested for any crime. And it's all her fault. Now that we've left home, we're all God-fearing, educated, honest adults. We're doing our best to be mean parents, just like mom was. I think that's what's wrong with the world today. It just doesn't have enough mean moms anymore. Well, folks, a parent's job is also to prepare for greatness. What I mean by that is you've got to encourage your child towards greatness. You've got to envision what their greatness could be. You've got to empower them towards it. and You've got to unleash them to get it. But you've got to have a vision for what they're going to be great in. I hope that your children do well in sports. May God give you a valedictorian. But if that's how you define greatness, I can tell you there are numerous, numerous valedictorians who hate themselves and are miserable and whose hearts are dark and athletes goes without saying whose lives are empty. The real goal is raising an honest, responsible kid who demonstrates genuine respect and love for others overflowing from their understanding God's love for them. A parent's job is to prepare for accountability. They're going to have it. This is a fantastic article that came out by a guy who's the president of Prison Fellowship Ministries. And uh, I'm going to tell you what he does. He condenses a book by uh, Jennifer Morse called Smart Sex. I'm going to just read you portions of it. This article, the book, Jennifer Morse is, is not a believer. Jennifer Morse is a, uh, just a social commentator. And uh, she wrote in a book called Smart Sex, Finding Lifelong Love in a Hookup World. Listen to this. She reminds us that free societies require people who live with a conscience. The vast majority of people must obey the law voluntarily, not because they're afraid of the police or society can't survive. This means you've got to cultivate people's willingness to collaborate peacefully with others and obey the law. In other words, you've got to teach your kids to develop a conscience. And what she says is that children whose parents never get married or have greater difficulty forming, those kids, uh, children to divorce and children whose parents never get married have greater difficulty forming attachments than children of married parents and thus have greater difficulty forming a conscience. As Morse puts it, we often think about conscience and cooperation in terms of arguments and justifications for moral rules. But watch this. But having a conscience at all depends on a whole host of prior conditions. People have the desire to do the right thing. In other words, they have to care about others. They can't be argued into morality. 
There has to be something implanted into their soul that relationships matter. And when they see relationships around them fractured, fragmented, and abandoned, they have a tendency to go, relationships don't matter. And so they don't have a conscience when they rape, abuse, and pillage other people. The moral groundwork is not rational, but relational. We don't develop trust, trustworthiness, or self-restraint in a social vacuum. The groundwork for the conscience is laid in the early months of an infant's life through his relationship with his mother and later on with his mother and father. This is why marriage and the family matters. Unless a child's parents love him and each other, he has a much more difficult time developing the qualities of self-command that society needs for children to have. She says, it's why every marriage and every parent has the potential to create children who can strengthen a free society or significantly weaken it. When inner restraints are missing, external restraints have to increase to fill the void. Watch this. You want to talk about raising tomorrow's masters? That's when governments become dangerous. Matrimony is God's gift to a free society. Tragically, it's it's a gift too few couples are willing to give today. What we've seen recently, this commentator writes, in New Orleans and Mississippi, the widespread looting, vandalism, and violence is a grim reminder of what happens when too many people have too little conscience. These lawbreakers, willing to terrorize their own neighbors, will be brought under control only by the point of a gun. Do you remember what was said earlier? We, for a democracy and a free society work, people have got to do the right thing more because they do the right thing than they have to for fear of punishment. In the future, is this the future of America, gun-toting National Guardsmen on every corner trying to keep order, or will we do what is necessary to develop conscience in our children? If we are not, we will reap the sobering consequences. Do you see that theme that William Penn put some three centuries ago? If men are not governed by God, they will be ruled by tyrants. Let me close with this. If you're not already overwhelmed, if your children are not governed by you for the greater good of their soul, they will be ruled by TV, music, the internet, media, lust, alcohol, drugs, and whatever else tells them that they will shepherd them through life. And God says, if you let that child walk through that without shepherding them well, he is not pleased with you. Now what I want to do is we're going to give you something you can specifically do to apply just one aspect of what we're talking about tonight. And I wanted just my buddy Dan to come up here and play a song that I remembered from a long time ago because this song touched me because I felt a lot like the kid in this song. In fact, I knew a kid just like this in the song. Her name was Lucy, uh, Lucy Willis. And I can remember how cruel we were to young Lucy as kids who were not informed by love. And uh, when I heard Dan sing this song about 20 years ago, it pierced my heart because I realized that I was not to Lucy what I wanted Christ to be for me. And uh, this song is always stuck in my mind. So I said to Dan, hey, we're going to do a little project at the end of this, and I want you to come up, and I want you to sing that song for me, and then I'm going to uh, grab it back from just a moment. So Dan, sing this little song for us. <laughs> ugliest girl in school Her short stringy hair made everyone stare And her hand-me-down clothes made her look like a fool Ugly Louise Mm. 
she was ugly. Louise was a loser. She stuttered when she'd speak. When she'd come to play, we'd all run away. Laugh at the wart on her cheek Ugly Louise mm. She was ugly Louise was a loser But Christ not refuse her. In fact, he gave his life just to choose her for his own. Cause to him, she was lovely. I just I want to tell you something. Your kids, just like you a lot of times, they, they feel just like Louise. And they feel like they can't do anything right. They feel like the world runs from them when they want to come play. There's insecurity that runs rampant in their home, just like insecurity runs rampant in our, in, in our hearts. And uh, you've got a great privilege to speak into their life the way Christ spoke into Louise's life, the way Christ spoke into my life and said you've got a lot more than a cute nose, Cousin Todd. I love you. And I died just to choose you. And my Heavenly Father, as I've studied His Word, has continually reminded me of how precious I am in His sight. And, and I've got a lot of baggage. I keep going back and go, really? Really? Even with what I keep doing? Even the way I keep thinking? Even the way that sometimes I, I stutter with the way I speak and the way I walk? Yeah, because you're my, Louise. You're my Todd. I love you. I know. I'm going to get you there. I'm going to be your father. I'm not going to give up on you. I am for you. You know, um, Allie, when she wrote her little uh, journey entry on Psalm 1, she talked about um, the fact that her mom and dad always tell her she loves her. We always tell her that we love her. And she says, oh, yeah, you've got to say that because you're my parents. And she says she acts like it's not a big deal because it's us. But she said the fact is if my parents didn't tell me that, it would really hurt. And she says I think that's why so many other folks hurt because they don't read books like the Psalms that remind them how much God loves them. But as we have said already, a child's earliest Images and convictions and ideas of what God is like come from you. And the most steady reminder throughout their life of what God is like, He intends, is to come from you. And so what we're going to give you a chance just to do is right here before you leave, we're going to the guys come back up here and uh, play a little music while we just sit in this room. And uh, in the very back of your books, and we think we got this right, we did the best we could checking on what you've got, you should have as many kids as you have, little forms. And these forms, depending on the age of your children, if they're old enough for you to be able to understand what you can write about them, it can say, we celebrate the godly characteristics um, that are present in your life. Or um, the ones that you would put in there for kids like my little camp that I really haven't seen yet much that he has chosen on his own, 
we have one that says we are, uh, see, we are praying for these godly characteristics to be developed in your life and that we'll give this to camp later. And what I want you to do with that Sharpie that you've been given is sit with your spouse. And if you're a single parent, yours doesn't have mom or dad on it. It's just got mom or dad on it right down there. And so for your children, if you don't have the exact number that you need with the exact right information you need, Suzanne and Angela will be in the back in blue shirts with Kubi, and they will trade out what you've got for what you need. But I want you just to sit here for the next 20 minutes. Uh, if you've got more kids like me, it might be something you'll do a little bit later tonight. And just... Take a moment and write your kids a love note. Now, I haven't asked you to do this on your own. Go to the very end of my first session. I'm going to show you what I've done for you. At the very end of this session, you've got a list of godly characteristics, qualities, and attributes. And so you can read through those, all right? And as you just read down them, go ahead and initial next to them. Oh, that's, my, that's this child. That's this child. They've got that. And, um, and then just put together a creative way to communicate to them uh, you know, what it is that you want them to know about how you feel about them and do what your job is to do as a parent, which is to encourage them. This is what I did for Allie a while back. Uh, Alex and I sat down together, and this is just one for her. We've done it for all of them at different times. But for this, we just wrote down this. I like to write little poems. We said, Allie, you are fun, loving, kind, and irresistibly cute. You're artistic, thoughtful, and a great daughter to boot. Your good looks and great smile we could see from the start. But the greatest beauty and value are found in your heart. Fun, loving, and kind, and irresistibly cute. Our love for our alley there is beyond all dispute. The shape of this card is the source of your glory. Those who see only your beauty are missing the story. Your good looks and great smile we could see from the start, but it is your, te- your tender spirit and big hugs that captured our heart. Proud to be your daddy. I love you, and I love you, Alley Bear, from Mom. And so when you give these gifts to your kids... You're playing a game like loaded questions sometimes. You say, give me two words to describe you. And they won't say stringy hair, buck tooth. They'll say strong, handsome, athletic, secure, loved, thankful. And you will be blessed. Take a moment and bless your kids.